Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lessons from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers the Bible teaching as his godly profession. One of the biblical teaching programs of our church, the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, is called Discipleship University. It meets on Sunday evenings, and thousands of people take part in one of the many classes which are taught by gifted teachers. Our Believer's Bible class teacher, Doug Brady, is one of those teachers, and this recording was made during the first week session as Doug presents the opening introductory class in a message called, Are There Really Wolves? The title of the entire class lessons, all nine of them, is False Teachings and the Doctrines of Demons. This series of nine lessons will highlight and reveal just some of the false teachings that take place in churches everywhere. One line of teaching by Doug in this recording defines it this way. The attacks of Satan take on many forms. One, the enemy seeks to distort, confuse, and weaken the doctrinal pillars of the church. Second, he finds opportunities to inject the ways of the world into the bastions of the Christian faith. And third, Satan seduces the believer into the throes of spiritual adultery. As I mentioned before, this class time is the introductory lesson preparing us for what is to come in the next several weeks. It is a series that all of us who honor Jesus and the ministry that our churches must adhere to should want to understand as we lead others into the arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The class is in place on the downtown Dallas location of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, and Doug is ready to begin. So, let's go into the classroom and listen carefully to the message as it was presented on Sunday evening, February 21, 2021. Here now is our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. Now, uh, we're starting this series. If some of you think you're coming in in the middle... That's not the situation. We're starting to now. I'm going to teach as long as they'll let me teach, as long as people don't convince the church to kick me out, because I'm going to talk about some things that some people may not like. Now, I have a feeling that maybe some of the people in here, most of the people, will like what I'm going to say, but some, who knows? And tonight, we're going to start and build the foundation for what we're going to talk about. Next week, assuming it doesn't freeze over, be that as it may, we're going to talk about something that has been in our church for a while. Now, some people think we don't have any heresies going on in our church, any uh, doctrine of demons. That's not true. And we're going to talk about being vigilant tonight and what that means. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the time that we could come together in your house and we could look at the word together. Help us to understand how important it is studying your word. Looking to, to see what it is you want to show us. What you want us to learn and put in our hearts. But 
more importantly, in this study, Father, how you want us to react to what's going on around us. I pray, Father, that you help us to come to understand tonight what's going on. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, there are a lot of people in this world who, if you were to ask them, give me two adjectives to describe Jesus. Their, their response would be very simple. They would all be the same. Meek and mild. The meek and mild baby Jesus. Everybody knows that. Well, Jesus was not mild. He was meek, but people don't understand that word. That's a Greek word that basically means power under control. And if you looked at some of the Greek texts to try and explain that, it would be like a wild stallion who has been tamed. He still has the same strength, the same power, the same stamina, the same endurance, the same heart. He just is, listens to the reins now and the one who's on his back. So, we're going to learn something a little different tonight about how we're supposed to respond to the other side. Now, first of all, it seems to me that there is no religious group in the history of the world that's been attacked more than Christianity. Uh, these attacks are basically of two types. They are external opposition from people who clearly are enemies of Christianity. They're also internal attacks from people who are supposed to be part of the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christianity. They're supposed to be a part of the family. Now, both of these type of attacks have done a great deal of damage to the church and to Christianity. I want you to think about this. When the church started with the Holy Spirit, how many denominations did the Holy Spirit establish? One. How many do we have today? That ought to be evidence in and of itself of what has been happening with these attacks within the church. So why is it that Christianity has borne the brunt of the a majority of such attacks? Well, the answer is really pretty easy to deduce. Who is the author of these attacks? Satan. Satan doesn't spend his time, his energy, and his assets attacking something that's false. Something that doesn't come from God. He's going to attack what God is doing and what results from God's plan. That's what he's going to attack. And so, in this set of lessons, I intend to focus on the internal attacks. The attacks uh, that will take on several different forms. One, the enemy is going to seek to distort, confuse, or weaken the doctrinal pillars of the church. The church is built on certain doctrinal pillars, and they are foundational. If I was to give you some examples, I would talk about the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. I would talk about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I would talk about the actual death of Jesus on a cross. I would talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, those type that salvation comes from grace, mixed with faith, and that alone. Those are foundational pillars. Now, they are not the only ones. There's doctrines of God and doctrines of Christ and doctrines of all different types of things that are pillars in the church. But they attempt to distort and confuse those pillars, weaken them so that the church might just crumble. Second, he intends to find opportunities, Satan does, to inject the ways of the world into the bastions of the Christian faith. And it becomes more and more worldly. 
Now, a third and final thing, he attempts to seduce the believer into the throes of spiritual adultery. Now, does that really happen? Yes, it does. We're going to talk about that. Now, if you're familiar with the title to what we're, we're talking about in this series, you've got to ask yourself a question. Are wolves really so bad? I mean, are, can't they be friendly and nice? And uh, we, you can see pictures where they lick your hand on the Internet and things like that. Let me tell you, wolves are not. That, that's what a wolf is. Uh, wolves are all about prey. I one time had a chance to talk to somebody who had studied, was studying wolves in Yellowstone Park where they've been reinstituted and, uh, and uh, they're doing really well. You know, uh, and I'm not saying wolves should all be eradicated. They shouldn't. They're an important part of the ecosystem. But I asked him this question. He thought I was a little stupid, but I said, if I was to met a wolf that wanted to kill me, and the only thing I had was a samurai sword, who do you think would win? He said, I'd put my money on the wolf. That's pretty serious predator. Now, let's talk about, is there really any authority for making some of the claims that I said? I want to establish tonight the authority from the Scriptures. We're going to look at the Scriptures a great deal. Because they are our plumb line, aren't they, David? So, the very first thing we want to look at is in, found in Timothy. It's something Paul tells us as he's speaking to Timothy. In Timothy 6, 11-12, he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you have been called, and you made the good profession in the presence of many witnesses. Now he speaks about fighting. But doesn't he mean in a figurative sense, in an attitudinal sense, not in any, well, let's go to Jesus' half-brother Jude and see what he follows up what Timothy is saying. He said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. What does it mean to contend earnestly? We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight as we go on. But I want you to think about this just a second. If we take a stand and contend earnestly for the foundations of our faith, isn't that going to make some people angry and upset with us? Maybe make others want to leave the church thinking that we're not really doing what Christ would do. Maybe they say you should take the position of a fellow I used to watch on TV called Sergeant Schultz. I know nothing. I see nothing. I heard nothing. Should we be like that? Or could it be that maybe Jesus' half-brother didn't know what he was really talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, Jesus had a conversation with a fellow named Joshua. And it was recorded in Joshua chapter 1. Listen to what he says. 
to Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous. Be very careful to do all that is according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, he's telling Joshua, I want you to be strong and courageous. Has anyone here ever been in a situation where something happened and they were extremely fearful of what was about to happen? Who they were facing or the circumstances they found themselves in? Can you say to yourself, okay, Doug, don't be scared, be strong and courageous. Then you're strong and courageous, right? You can do that. I don't think that really happens like that. Now, I can remember coming home one day from school, elementary school, and it was a guy who was two grades ahead of me threatened to beat me up if I didn't do something that he wanted me to do. And I told my mom, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. He said, she said, well, you need to be courageous. And I said, I don't know how. And she took me to this passage about being strong and courageous. And she said, Doug, as you read this, what is it that God gave to Joshua to make him strong and courageous? And I said, I don't know. So she pointed out, it starts in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written for it, for then you will make your way uh, prosperous and success. Now, we tend to think of business when we hear prosperous and success, right? But what was Joshua fixing to do? He was fixing to lead the Israeli military of the day into the promised land and fight to the death with the inhabitants there. So his prosperousness and successfulness was based on military achievements, right? And I learned that day, and it took a few more lessons, but as I started following her plan to memorize certain scriptures, and to learn certain principles, and to remember certain stories, like David and the uh, dwarf, and uh, that's what she called it, David and the dwarf, because he was a spiritual dwarf where David was a spiritual giant, and uh, other things like that, then I started changing how I thought about things and how I looked at things. Now, should we really be concerned about false teachers and faithless or shady teachings in our time? Many people want to suggest, Doug, you don't understand the times. And the reason you don't understand them is this. This was a problem in pre-canonical times. Pre-canonical times. That is, before the Bible was, the New Testament was written, they didn't know what the correct doctrine was, and if they didn't have somebody like Paul or John or Titus to tell them, they couldn't be sure. They couldn't say, well, we know this or that. And then it may have been sometimes after the canon that it was the Bible was completed, but, you know, nobody had access to it hardly. 
you know, uh, during uh, uh, Middle Ages, the one Bible in the town was chained to the pulpit. You couldn't have access to it if you were just a, a commoner. And so, well, I started thinking about that, and I said, what does the Bible say? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with the branding iron. Now first, for us, what's the first and most important phrase in, in this passage here? To answer this question, that in latter times. Who's living in latter times? That's us. We are. Number two, what is it that they're paying attention to? Deceitful spirits and doctrine of demons. Now, this passage, if you look at it, it doesn't leave room for gray. It's either coming from the Scriptures or it's coming from Satan and his demonic followers. Does it give you a third possibility? Well, we know that some people may get confused or things, but... Isn't that one of Satan's weapons? Confusion? Distortion? You think you're right, but you're not. Now, it's one thing if there's a, a difference over some minor part, of, but I'm talking about important things. Things have to do with the pillars of the faith. Look again in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. It says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church uh, of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, and this is Paul talking, although Luke is recording it, savage wolves will, enter, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, Jesus said basically the same thing in Matthew 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. Jesus said these people are coming and they're going to happen. If you're looking at Matthew 24, what's it talking about? It's talking about the end times. If you look at, at Timothy, it says, in the latter times. Now, is it really fair to compare these internal attackers to wolves, as, as I have done? Well, Paul didn't seem to, to shy away from that. But you know, who would be the best one to know whether a comparison to a wolf would be, the be, would be proper? Who? Who? David, maybe? How about somebody else? Jesus, maybe. Now, David's good, but I think you'd have to agree with me, Gary, wouldn't you? Jesus is a little better since he's God. Now, in Luke 10, 2 through 3, look what he says. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go, behold, I am sending you out as lamb in the midst of wolves. Again, in Matthew 7, 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 10, 
Behold, I send you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, what are wolves like? That is an excellent picture of a wolf. Now, he's got a kill here. Is he going to be able, actually it's she, is she going to be able to eat that whole kill by herself? No, but she's going to fight to the death not to let anybody else have it. Wolves are ravenous and relentless predators. Many times they hunt in packs and will seek to wear down and exhaust their prey. They even are known to start devouring the prey before they're even dead. Eating them alive. Wolves show no mercy. No mercy at all. I mean, I want you to think about it from a second from our point of view. Jerry, what's your favorite hamburger place? McDonald's. What's your favorite hamburger at McDonald's? A Big Mac. Now, let's suppose that you hadn't eaten anything today and you were sitting there with a Big Mac in your hand. Would you have any thoughts whatsoever at showing mercy to that hamburger? Are you kidding? <laughs> Actually, I am kidding because I know you wouldn't. Neither would any of us. We don't think mercy when it comes to... Well, that's the way wolves think in relation to their prey. And they will go after prey like this. In Yellowstone, they hunt bison. Weighs five or six times what they do. But through their pack mentality, they have learned how to hunt. So, we need to understand that these internal attackers are described as ravenous wolves. Now, they're also described as something else, as opposed to ravenous wolves. Do you know what that is? Seductresses. Seductress. Now, that's the way it came across in some verses. I'm, when you hear seductress, you're thinking of a woman trying to pull down a man. There are also seductors, though, who, and maybe more so than seductresses, who are men trying to pull down women. But we're talking now, not physically, but in the spiritual realm. Seeking to seduce one into spiritual adultery. Now, this is a picture that you're going to see that God has given to us. And I want you to think about it just a second. Some of you in here may have experienced the pain of adultery. I will tell you, uh, to be completely honest with everybody... Uh, God saved a woman for me that I'm married to now, but probably because I had so many rough edges that he had to chisel off, he instructed me to marry a woman who I'm not married to now. I learned over and over and over in that relationship the pain of adultery, the effect it has on your relationship with your spouse, the effect it has on your family, the effect it has on yours and her parents, the effect it has on relatives and other places, the effect it has on your peers, the effect it has on your business associates, just the effect that's all pervasive from that horrible pain. Now we need to understand that God sees it the same way when we succumb to the seduction of Satan in our churches. I can remember in our church. Some of you may remember this. Maybe none of you will. But we were between pastors. 
And we had an interim pastor who was uh, preaching regularly on Sundays. And I was sitting, it was in the old sanctuary, and I was sitting up in the balcony. I had my two boys with me, and we were sitting there listening. And he started relating a story about what he did in the church, and there was a musical group in there. And one of the musicians came down at the altar call to be saved. He wanted to give his heart to Jesus. And the interim pastor who said he was holding that revival said, I said to him, son, you need to cut your hair. And he said, well, I don't think I'm going to cut. Then you can't be saved. Well, as soon as I heard that, I looked around. Is anybody else responding to this the way? And it seemed nobody was. Well, I stood up and in this tone of voice said, boys, get up, we're leaving. People looked at me, but they didn't react to what he said. I couldn't believe it in our church. We walked out. I'm going to put up with that. That is heresy. I, I even I get started getting a little ticked when I think about it again, that our church would have that. It, it, to me, it not only makes you angry, but it, it, it embarrasses you, sickens and hurts you, that that would be said in our church, much less done in that revival. Who knows whether that boy was ever got saved or not? Could you imagine that boy coming up before the great white throne judgment standing there hearing that he's going to have to go to hell and just before he turns to walk away he looks up there and he sees that preacher and he says you told me I couldn't be saved until I cut my hair is that really true Jesus Jesus looks around at him said why don't you answer that question you had something to say Doug that doesn't sound very meek to me no <laughs> it doesn't all right Let's look at this concept of seductress. In Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 20, but I have this against you, Jesus is saying to the church, uh, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. She did not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation until they repent of their deeds. That doesn't sound like Jesus is too happy with the seductress to me. But let's look again in 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as they will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. You know, not like wolves. Wolves are not secretive. But they will secretly introduce destructive heritage, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words and their judgment from long ago idle and their destruction is not asleep. That sensuality they're talking about is seduction that Satan tries to use on us. Now, in the face of these attackers and this going on, what should we do? Well, the first thing is that some of us don't even recognize our need to be vigilant and wary. Well, that's the pastor's job, right? No. That is all of our jobs. What does it describe us in First Peter? 
a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're supposed to be priests. Just some of us? No, all of us. If you know Jesus in a personal way, you're supposed to be a priest. Priests need to be watching for what is going on. We need to be vigilant and wary. Remember what he said, as shrewd as a servant. Secondly, we have to learn how to recognize the adversary. In a minute, well, I'm going to give you a number of ways that you can recognize a false teacher. And then we need to respond how God has instructed us to respond. Well, how has God instructed us to respond to false teachers? Let me ask you this. Are we instructed to, if we find a false teacher, to go to him first individually, and then if he says no, to bring some people with him, with us, and then, and then, then to bring them? No. That's not the way we're supposed to. Now, that's the way brothers... Uh, who, are, who are mistaken and who are falling into something and they need to be rescued. How do you deal with false teachers? Uh, Paul says, first in 2 Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, well, they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now that's what he's saying. We have to be ready in season and out to respond to them. Now that was in 2 Timothy. What he said to Titus was a little stronger than that. In Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10, it says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning especially those who are Jewish, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now, is that not a very strong phrase? Must be silenced. That's what needs to happen false teachers, the false teachings going on in our churches. And we've got to stop it. Now, we're probably not responsible for anybody else's church, but we are certainly responsible for our own. So, how does one recognize a false teacher? I'm going to go through and give you several ways, and I am pulling these concepts out of 2 Peter chapters 1 and 2. And you will want to see it. And I will give you some quotes from those. So the very first concept is it's a different source. They are speaking from a different source. They rely on a different source. Where does their message come from? Well, look what Peter says. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in verse 16 of chapter 1. And then he says that the false teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. So the true teacher speaks from the Bible. The false teacher relies on his own creativity and often comes up with his own message. He's speaking from a different source. Number two, they will proclaim a different message. So we need to know what is the substance of their message. For the true teacher, Jesus Christ is central. Peter said, we have everything we need for life and godliness in him. Everything we need. For the false teacher, Jesus is at the margins. 
They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Notice the word secretly. It's rare for someone in church to openly deny Jesus. Movement away from the centrality of Jesus Christ is it's, uh, subtle. But that's what they're about. The false teacher will speak about how other people can help change your life. But if you listen carefully to what they are saying, you will see that Jesus Christ is not essential to their message. A different message. Third, they maintain a different position. Well, in what position will the message they, they teach leave you? The true Christian escapes the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Now listen to how Peter describes the counterfeit Christian. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Can you think of an example in our church? We had a pastor who for a while was preaching before he decided to quit. And during at least the last six months of his pastorate, he was involved in an adulterous affair. No one knew it, but he and the woman. Well, at least as far as we know. It wasn't until after he left that it came to light that this was going on. But you see, he was enslaved to that. And am I saying everything he said is false and should be disregarded? No, he was a superb pastor. Uh, or let me say a superb preacher. It, Satan does this. Let me give you an example from the scriptures of how Satan so subtly does this. If you go through the first chapter and the second chapter of the book of Genesis, for the most part, he used, when he's talking about what God's doing, he says, he uses the phrase, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Now, Elohim is the strong, faithful, covenant-keeping God. That's what that main name Elohim means, among other things. But the strong, faithful, covenant-keeping God. Yahweh, on the other hand, is the God of existence and the God of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He recognizes and establishes what is sin. He sets out what's righteousness, and He pervades judgment. And all the way through, it's the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God, until you get to chapter 3, when who appears? Satan. And he starts to talk to Eve. And he's sharing with her. And he said, God didn't really say that. Elohim. He didn't want to bring up Yahweh, the God of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Just Elohim, you know, the God who, the strong, faithful, covenant-keeping God. You see? Very subtle. But that's what this is all about. Is that kind of perniciousness as, as we go on. Right along, these false teachers will operate under a different character. What kind of people does this message produce? True believers pursue goodness and knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness and love. That's what Peter is saying in verse 5. But the counterfeit Christian is marked by arrogance, slander. They are experts in greed, and their eyes are full of adultery. They also despise authority. No one should have any control over them. This is a general characteristic of the counterfeit believer. We need to see that. That's, that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing is they will seek to offer a different appeal. 
Why should you listen to the message? The true teacher appeals to Scripture. We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, Paul says in verse 19. But God has spoken, and the true teacher appeals to his word. The false teacher makes a rather different appeal. By appealing, Peter says, to the lustful desires of sinful nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. So the true teacher asks himself, what has God said in his word? The false teacher asks himself, what do people want to hear? What do people want to hear? That's what I'm going to give them, because then they'll follow me. Sixth, they produce a different kind of fruit. The result, what result does the mess, their message have in people's lives? The true believer, he's effective and productive in his or her knowledge of Jesus. The counterfeit is like a spring without water. Chapter 2, verse 17. This is an extraordinary picture. They promise much, but deliver little. That's the false teacher, the different kind of fruit. They don't deliver fruit. Doesn't come. The, the spring is empty. Now, their results are going to bring about a different end. A different end. Where does the message ultimately lead you that these teachers are, are proclaiming? Here, we find the most disturbing uh, contrast of all. Most disturbing of all. The true believer will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the message of the righteous and the godly teacher will lead the people who are following him. But the false teacher will experience swift destruction in verse 1 of chapter 2. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. In other words, it's coming. Jesus tells us that there will be many who will be involved in ministry in his name who will say, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Who are these people? Surely, Peter is describing them in this passage. Now, I tried to lay out for you ways to, to spot these false teachers. Maybe every one of those uh, different things that I have described may not always, all seven of them, apply to every false teacher. But it's kind of like symptoms of a disease. You look in the books and they'll say, here's seven symptoms. But you have this disease if you have four of them, or five of them. And it's the same concept here. Now, I know we're finishing a little early tonight, but there's been a lot of things going on this last week. My office was shut down all week, mostly from lack of power. Then pipes burst and flooded the bottom floor. They had five feet of water down in the basement. And uh, because of that, they had to shut off the power again. So my server was down. Uh, my uh, internet was down at the office. But I want us to talk about some of the things here that we need to be about. I think, based on what we've talked about tonight, our first conclusion should be this. That we have an obligation not to be ignorant. We have an obligation. God is admonishing us. I don't want you to be ignorant. I have laid it out for you here. You live in the post-canonical, post-printing press time period. You have no excuse. Now, well, let me ask you this before, I, before that. How many of you 
have your own personal study time. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands right now. I want you to think about it. That you have set aside. I mean, if I was asked you, when during the week do you have it? If you say, well, whenever I get a chance, then you don't have it. Now, do you have to have your own personal study time? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that you do, unless you're married. And then you can have your own personal study time with your spouse. And the two of you together is one, study. But if you're not doing one of those two things, you're not fulfilling your obligation. You need to know this Bible. Learn it. Memorize it. I can remember my mother, she wanted me to be a Bible teacher. She didn't want me to be a preacher or a doctor or a missionary. She wanted me to be a Bible teacher. And there came a time where she bought a book that was about this thick, uh, Bible stories. And every night, she would read one to me. And sometimes I'd be able to convince her to read more than one. And she would read them and read them. We'd get to the end of the book. We'd start again at the beginning. And we'd go through them. So she wanted to make sure every important story in the Bible I knew. Now, back in those days, they didn't have pre-kindergarten and those kind of things. And I must have been four, maybe just turned five. And I said to her, tonight... I'll read the story, Mom. She said, you can't read. Oh, yes, I can. Show me. She handed me the book. I opened up the book, and I started reading the story verbatim. Now, was I reading? No. I'd heard him so many times, I had him memorized. You see, that's what she was about. Building that kind of thing into those who she had. Now, let me tell you a story about that kind of concept and how it works because it is so important to understand. If you go back in my family, on my mother's side, you'll come to a fellow uh, who was a colonel in the Army uh, artillery unit. He fought in World War I. He came back from that. He went to Colorado, left his home in Iowa and went to Colorado, homesteaded, kept that homestead, built up that ranch, Sold the ranch once he could, and then came back, used that money to go to law school, and became a lawyer in Iowa, and eventually district attorney. He was married, after he came back from Colorado, to a woman named Pauline, and neither one of them were believers. Then Pauline's friend asked her to go to a women's Bible study. And she said, well, you know, I like the people there, so I'll just go. And she went. And it wasn't too long before Jesus touched her heart and she received Jesus as her personal Savior. Then she really was excited about this Bible study. And she kept going and learning and studying on her own and then going. And after a while, she started praying, Lord, would you like me to teach a Bible study? I think I could do that. And she believed the answer was yes. So she went to her husband who was not a believer at the time. And she said to him, Barney, that's what they called him, Barney, I would like to teach a women's Bible study in our home. Would you have a problem with that? Yes, I would, he said. I don't want you doing that. Why not? I don't think it's proper. We're not going to do it. And that's the end of it. Now, what is she going to do? She feels like the Lord is calling her to teach a Bible study. And she 
she told me, she said, Doug, my first thought was, maybe I'll go teach in somebody else's home and then I could just get around it that way. And she thought of some other plans, but then she started praying about it. And you know what she did? She said, I'm going to start a Bible study in my home and it's not going to be a women's Bible study. It's going to be a daughter's Bible study. I've got two daughters, Margaret and Catherine, and I'm just going to start teaching them. And she taught them until they left to go away to college. Margaret became the finest lady Bible teacher in all of Tampa, Florida. And if you were to get on Bayside Community Church's website, you can still hear her, even though she's passed away. My mother came to Dallas, Catherine. She had a Tuesday morning women's Bible study. She started in her home. Pretty soon it got so big, her home wouldn't hunt. had to move to a church. She had 250 women. She taught uh, teenage girls. And I, I can remember every once in a while, I'd meet some girl I'd never, I didn't know if she was usually rather attractive, and I'd start to talk to her. And she'd say, wait a second. Who's your mother? I said, Kay Brady. She gave me a Bible. And uh, her, her ministry was everywhere. Because Pauline obeyed her husband, but did what God wanted her to do. That's the way this should be. We should be growing like that. And let me show you where this comes from. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 15. This was a verse that she had gotten me to memorize. Now, when I memorized it the first time, it was study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Then I memorized it the second time. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. First in the King James, because that's all we had. Uh, well, that was any good. That was all we had. And then... 1977, New American Standard came out, and in 1995, it was uh, updated. The only real difference in these two verses is in two areas. One, rightly dividing versus accurately handling. Rightly dividing is kind of uh, an archaic term that was as understandable to those in the 1600s as accurately handling is today. The other one, study to show, versus be diligent to present. Now, the difference in those two concepts, one, the first one is more of an action, while the second one is more of a motivation. What's the proper translation? Well, if you look in your notes, I've given you the lexicon definition of spudazo, and spudazo means to hasten, to make haste, to exert oneself endeavor or to give diligence to. I think it's talking more about motivation than action. But you can be a judge for yourself what it is. But whether it's an action or a motivation, what is it saying? It is in the imperative mood. What does imperative mean? A command. This is what we are instructed to do so that you won't be ashamed, that you can accurately handle the Word of God. Now, I want you to think about this. You pick whichever version you want. Take your five best friends, not your spouse, but your five best friends, and say, would they say about me that I'm diligent 
with the Word of God or I study because I want to be approved by God so that I won't be ashamed in situations and I know how to handle the Word of, the word of Truth. Would those five friends say that about you? Why not if the answer is no? Because you're not doing it. You say, well, it's easy. You're a Bible teacher. So you have to study all the time. When I was reading this in the King James, study to show yourself to prove unto God if you're a Bible teacher. It doesn't say that, does it? Is there anybody exempt from this? Yeah, non-believers. They're the only ones. If you're a believer, you should be studying the Bible. Isn't that what happened to my grandmother? She became a believer and, not, and she started studying and then she thought, I not only can study, I can help other people study. That's what God wants. Now, let's look at something else that I want you to see. It's in Acts chapter 17. I want you to see an example of this. Paul was in Thessalonica. And when Paul would go to a town, where would he go to first? Gary, do you know where he'd go first in the town? The synagogue. And so he'd teach the Jews. And in Thessalonica, when Paul showed up there, three different Sabbaths he was there. How Do you remember how the uh, Jewish population there responded to him? Rejected him completely. Not only rejected him completely, but they objected him aggressively and uh, violently. And he, he was forced to leave town. And he went down to Berea. But when he went to Berea, where do you think he went first? Synagogue. So here's the passage. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. What are they saying? They're saying, Paul's preaching this to us. He's saying the word of God says this. We're going to look ourselves. We're going to come to understand and see what it is that God has here for us. And therefore, many of them believed along with the number of prominent Greek men and women. And you maybe could understand Greek as Gentile, non-Jews. So, what did they do? Those, you know, there's a group of believers who call themselves the Bereans now because they believe in studying. It's a strong group, aren't they? So, they are our example. That's why this is put in here. Check it out. So, what I'm telling you tonight, what did you do? Check it. We have a new word for that, vetting, right? See if I'm telling you what the Scriptures really say. Because if you search in the Scriptures to find out whether Brady's right in what he said, you're going to be learning and teaching yourself, aren't you? And the Holy Spirit's going to be directing you. That is what we're to be about. Bible knowledge. Now, I heard this not too long ago, but in the very first chapter of the book of Proverbs, it says, the fear of God is the beginning of all wrong. No, it doesn't. Look in the first chapter, Dawn, and tell me whether it says it's wisdom or knowledge. Seven. Seven. Now, you get to chapter 2, it will say wisdom. But in chapter 1, it's knowledge. Knowledge of what? 
Now, if you were to look at that word in the Hebrew, it would basically have the concept of experiential knowledge or intimate knowledge. What does it want? You should be experienced in this knowledge, intimate in this knowledge of what? God's Word. God's Word. That's what we're to be about. Now, that you're going to use this same word talking about this in a promise that God's given us. It's a promise I haven't memorized. It's actually a promise I don't like very much. It's a promise nonetheless, but it scares me. Found in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people. Now when he starts out, my people, I think that includes me. He says, he's talking to the Jewish people right then, but those were the only ones who believed in him at the time for the most part. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Now wait a second. We're priests, right? Do we want to be rejected from being his priest? What is he saying will cause that if we reject his knowledge? Now listen to what else he says. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. Now, to me, that's rather chilling. Don't you think? I think you can serve the Lord God without knowing who He is. You have to know Him and His principles and His expectations for you. It's a relationship. Yes, and if you don't know Him, this is what's going to happen. Now, that's chilling to me. So it means that if you have children, it's even stronger. Now, this admonition to you. Because why is it stronger for parents? Because what are parents supposed to do? They're supposed to be teaching this to their children. If they don't know it, how can they teach it? Now, I'm of also of the opinion. I wasn't as strong in this opinion until I married Julie and was introduced into her family. But I came to see something. God has provided a safety net for parents. You know what that safety net is called? Godly grandparents. I've seen, I hope she doesn't get mad at me. Maybe she won't listen to this. I've seen one side of the family where the parents were not doing that good of a job in teaching their three children God's Word. And yet those children were thriving because the grandmother was. And she'd have them over the house and she'd go through things I can remember the daughter called me one week and she said, Doug, I know you teach at First Baptist and you go to church there, but I don't get to go to church. And so we're having a church in my home that I'm going to do on Sunday after. Would you come? What do you think I said? Not a chance. Sarah, of course I'll come. And we came amazed at the things that that girl at that age knew and were teaching us. Now, I knew most of the things, but I didn't know them when I was her age. God's going to use that girl. No, this is four years ago, five years ago. And she, she was, yeah, Julie's niece. Is that from her mother, grandmother's uh, influence? Absolutely. She was the one putting it. She'd have her over to her house. Take, well, you can come over here after school. 
mother decided she wanted to work, but didn't have to. And I'm getting, I shouldn't be. But the fact is that she built into that little girl, and it was amazing what she could do and say and understood. And so I'm saying that that's the reason for the knowledge, parents and grandparents. Now, what are we going to do next time? Assuming we don't get snowed out or COVIDed out or something like that, that Satan, you know, I have found that Satan doesn't like me teaching these kinds of things. There is something going on in our church, has been going on in our church for a long time. And our church needs to be aware of it. I probably would not be the best one to be proclaiming this. Someone who would be better than me. But I'm going to proclaim it nonetheless. There is a devotional book out called Jesus Calling. Have you ever heard of it before? Well, we're going to look at it. And I'm going to tell you that it's heretical. And I'm going to tell you that there's going to be things that you will see as I start to explain it to you. Now, it's interesting. I have an older copy of it. My wife told me, I don't want that in our house. I said, no, we're going to have it in the house because this is evidence and we need to have it. And there are things in the version that I have that have been pointed out now by a number of other people. And so later editions, those things are taken out. But I'm going to show you what's there and you're going to see. And that's what I'm going to teach on next Sunday evening. Jesus Calling, taught on it once in my Sunday morning Bible study. Uh, there was a woman in that class who was sending out devotionals to other women in the group, even to my wife. I said, don't tell her. Let's just keep seeing what's going on and what she's saying. But uh, from Jesus Calling, well, she decided she thought it best if she left the class. There was a woman at the end who raised her hand and I said, what? Tell me. What do you have to say? He said, well, our minister of music has recommended that to the choir. I said, you're kidding me. No. And I said, will you uh, give me his email address afterwards if you have it? Sure. There was another man in our class who left our class as quick as he could that Sunday, went immediately over to that minister of music and told him, you know, she's told Brady this. You better cool this down. You better change the story and you better not say that you're recommending it. That you just have heard that it might be good. Does that kind of thing go on in our church? Well, evidently it did. So, we need to look into this stuff. We need to see there are things like that going on. You know, in my mind, you're not going to find probably a more right-on church in Dallas. I mean, you'd probably have to go down to Sugarland to find one that's more... But uh, anyway, that's where uh, we need to see that these things can creep into churches and unawares. And if we're not vigilant and if we're not wary, we won't know about them and these things will just go on. We're going to talk about there is a group that is infiltrating the church that is going to try and uh, turn us uh, inside out. And it's the homosexual gay lesbian community. Yep.
And let me tell you, they're going to, if you know anything about House Bill 5 now, and they, the, this bill is going to provide that you cannot in any way prevent someone like a, uh, a gay or a lesbian or anything from becoming a member of your church group, of being an employee in your church group, of serving in your church. But I want you to think about this a, a second. They're going to try to destroy religious rights. But we need to recognize one thing here that I talked about this morning. We're in now a Romans 1 culture. We are living in a pagan America. Whether you like it or not, we are. And we're going to have to decide how we're going to live. But the first thing we need to do is guard our hearts, guard our families, and guard our church. Then guard our government. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could be together tonight and that we could study your word. I thank you that there's these men and women who are committed to understanding what's going on. I pray that you will help me to be faithful and diligent in my study to be able to share with them and bring to them the things that they need to hear. Help me not to be fearful, timid, or intimidated in reaching out and saying the things that need to be said. I know, Father, that there may come a time that what I'm going to be saying can be viewed as hate speech and I could be jailed. But if that's what your will is for me, take care of my wife and help me to have a ministry in jail. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.